Today on Points for Tryin', the futuristic illustrations of Frank Tinsley. And fair warning, his first idea is one that he titled California's Big Squirt. Hey everyone, welcome back to Points for Tryin'. I'm Brandon. And I'm Jessica. And together, we celebrate ideas and inventions that were unsuccessful, forgotten, or just plain weird. And today, we'll be looking at the ideas of one person in particular, scientific illustrator Frank Tinsley. Have you ever heard of Frank Tinsley, Jessica? Not until you introduced him to me. He was a fairly prolific illustrator in the 1950s. He did a lot of illustrations for a magazine called Mechanics Illustrated. And yes, Mechanics is spelled with an X. (laughs) Because it's futuristic that way. It's the future. And I was thinking we could talk about some of his ideas because he had a lot of them. And some of them were out there and some of them sort of came true. So let's get into it. His first one is called... California's Big Squirt. Gotta love that title. (laughs) He was solving a a very real question we still think about, how to irrigate California. And uh, his idea was basically use gigantic water cannons to shoot water all across the California desert. Okay, have you ever seen a fire hydrant that's just open and spewing the water everywhere? I have. And then the pressure behind that as they put out a fire? Could you imagine that times a million <laughs> to shoot this across California? It feels dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> that does bring up a, a good point. Is like In the illustration, nobody's underneath these water cannon geysers, but like if you've ever seen a fire hose, one, the water goes everywhere and it evaporates. It gets blown around. It is very optimistic the way he illustrates this water as like gracefully arcing into the air and then coming back down and being collected in this little basin, <laughs> uh, which I guess kind of gets scooped up. It's basically like a a water cannon on one end and then like a big pot on the other end where the water gets scooped up and then repressurized and shot again. So you just got like these arcs uh, of water just snaking around. Optimistic gracefulness. <laughs> that is what I feel like every time I go into a bar class. I'm going to be optimistic that today it might be graceful. <laughs> <laughs> I have never seen you perform bar but I am 100% sure that you are more graceful than hundreds of thousands of gallons of water being shot into the air. Oh, hopefully. (laughs) Let's read what he had to say. The parched deserts of Southern California need water to transform their barren soil into fertile farmlands and tourist meccas such as those existing elsewhere in the state. So far, the problem has remained unsolved. But Sidney Cornell a Los Angeles construction engineer, thinks he has a solution. He wants to construct a series of geyser-like power plants one mile apart to shoot water from the mouth of one into the funnel of the next, as depicted here by MI artist Frank Tinsley. The water would arc over hilly sections and have a flat trajectory over plains. Its velocity would approach 400 miles per hour. These stations, 400 at all, 
would cost about $300,000 each. Pint of lager. <laughs> Pint of lager here. Yes. Before we go too far, I want to point out that 400 miles per hour is faster than some airplanes. <laughs> How could this possibly go wrong? I, I see no risk in this at all. Let's just do it. Also, here's the thing. Cindy Cornell and, by the way, Frank Tinsley neglected to take into consideration the fact that this would only work one time. Because if you hit California with that much water at that much pressure, you can get the water there once. <laughs> once you have something there in the way, you would destroy any crops that you're trying to irrigate. No, no, no. It, it gets scooped up in that little basin. I have my doubts. <laughs> <laughs> If a bunch of engineers were playing a drinking game that was like how to transport water in the least efficient way possible, this is what they would come up with. It would be efficient, just not practical. It's terribly inefficient. One, water's incredibly heavy, and they're shooting it into the air instead of, you know, just pushing it along the surface. That's true. Also, $300,000 each. What was this? I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. Even in 1950s money, I don't believe that. I just want to go to the inflation calculator real fast. Okay. According to our handy dandy inflation calculator, $300,000 in 1951 dollars would be $3,418,569 and some change in 2022. I still don't believe it. You Like... That would cover the first round of lawsuits from people that got hit by these water cannons. <laughs> uh, thankfully, this didn't come to fruition. Maybe you could be smart about this, because the, the water is, one, not going to go where you want it to go. So what if you just, like, built farmland underneath these little things, and it was just like a gigantic sprinkler? <laughs> I don't know. I keep trying to think of a, a way to improve this to make this a little bit more efficient, and I, I keep coming back to, like, just build a fucking canal. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know the best way to transport water? Rivers. Or an aqueduct. I know. Or, here's a concept, leave the deserts desert, plant the food around the water. <laughs> it's worked for millennia. I think we got this down pat, guys. I think we got this. You know who had a better idea than these guys? Rome. <laughs> Look at what happened to their society. Sheesh. Oh, you're right. <laughs> also, have you ever been in the desert during monsoon season? I have not, no. So one of the very big things that would be a problem with this is what anyone who's ever lived in the desert during monsoon season knows to be true. Desert ground is very compact, and it's not terribly aerated, and it doesn't absorb large amounts of water, especially when those large amounts of water come down all at once because of the way that the soil is. Right, it's dry soil. Exactly. So all that they would be doing is starting either a major mudslide and or massive flooding and create a nice, beautiful lake. And hey, listeners... Leave a comment down below if you've ever lived in the desert during monsoon season. <laughs> All right, let's move on. All right. Uh, the, the title for this one is, Why Don't We Build an Atoms for Peace Dirigible? And hey, why don't we? All right, first off, what's a dirigible? 
Uh, it's it's like a like the Hindenburg, like airships, like zeppelins. Uh, they're dirigibles. Ah, see, I understood zeppelin. I think dirigibles and zeppelins are the exact same thing, but but we didn't want it to sound too German, so we didn't say the word zeppelin. <laughs> and then Led Zeppelin came along, and now everybody just thinks of the band. Yeah. Oh, true. <laughs> Atoms for Peace was a uh, kind of marketing program for nuclear power. Uh, after World War II, there was this idea to kind of come up with peaceful uses for nuclear power and kind of uh, have good marketing for the nuclear power industry. And one of them was this gigantic ship. And Frank Tinsley said, oh, no, no, a ship's not good enough because it can only go to coastal cities. A dirigible can go everywhere in the world. And that is how we serve as an ambassador for nuclear power, an atoms for peace dirigible. I think the most peaceful use of atomic energy is a power plant. But you can't just like bring a power plant from city to city as a road show. <laughs> True, but I would love to try. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I love that. Like, I would love to ride in a gigantic uh, nuclear-powered dirigible. It's got, I mean, look at some of this. It's got a radar dome. It's got a helicopter deck, so smaller aircraft could land inside of it. Uh, it's got a nightclub and bar at the top. <laughs> and it's got a self-service elevator. So, you know, when you're in your atom-powered dirigible, you don't have to wait around for the elevator attendant. I mean, it's got everything. A self-service elevator reminds me of the elevator to space that we did a couple episodes ago oh yeah well i mean you could you could get into the elevator when the blimp is on the ground and then if it's climbing up you're basically uh taking an elevator to space i don't know how safe it is to have a nuclear powered dirigible that also has helicopters just trying to land inside slash on it feels dangerous. <laughs> I don't know what was dangerous about that. We're basically combining the three safest things in the world, nuclear reactors, blimps, and helicopters. <laughs> that, that brings us to a really good point. I want to read a quote from the article. The lower it flies, the more majestic it appears, as anyone who saw the Akron, Macon, or Hindenburg will testify. Uh, I'm assuming the Akron and Macon are also dirigibles, and I also want to point out this article was written after the Hindenburg blew up, and he still brings up the Hindenburg. <laughs> you might have died on it, but dang, it looked impressive. <laughs> <laughs> You're really selling your idea when it's like, no, it's just like the Hindenburg. Everybody's got positive feelings about the Hindenburg. Uh, <laughs> I just. He's like. All right, if that didn't work out, picture it. Titanic 2, electric boogaloo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe blimps aren't your thing. Maybe rockets are your thing. Everything is space, so yeah, rockets are my thing. Everything is space. You're pretty sure rocket travel is going to become a thing. And there's only one problem. How do rockets land? Uh, with a boom? That's why you need a rocket catcher. Uh... <laughs> so... The rocket catcher is basically a gigantic telescoping tube. I don't know, it looks like a cross between a shock absorber and a curtain rod, but like the size of a train. And that rocket just comes in one end, and then the tube kind of like collapses and slows down the rocket. (laughs) Until at the end, you've just got the rocket inside of this like collection of tubes. 
I I would be terrified. I mean, there are a lot of people who are afraid of flying anyway, but that would be absolutely terrifying. So why don't we take a look at what Mr. Tinsdale has to say in the magazine. He says, and I quote, If and when space travel becomes a reality, side note, still waiting for that, <laughs> there will be the problem of landing high-speed rocket ships. D.B. Driscoll of San Francisco thinks he has the answer in his U.S. patent. Do you want to know the numbers? 259-873. He would build a system of telescoping tubes butted against a mountainside or mounted on skis or a train platform. The rocket ship would be guided into the end of the outer tube by radar. This tube would slide into the second tube, braked by air pressure, and then into the main tube. When pressure between the tubes is released, passengers would leave through doors in their walls. So out of all that pressure, the doors in their walls have to hold. That's a lot of pressure. And also that is just a really small target for a very fast rocket. Like if you could guide a rocket onto a target this tiny, you could just put wheels on it and guide it onto a runway. Didn't they do that with our, with our spaceships that come back down? Yeah, the space shuttle. <laughs> yeah, the space shuttle just comes back from space and lands on a runway. Like, <laughs> the problem of landing rocket ships was just, oh, let's land them the same way we land airplanes. <laughs> so what I'm looking at with this illustration, if this rocket goes in as it is, it feels like the fins would act like drywall anchors do, right? And it would just get stuck in there. Yeah. And then it'd be a one-time use rocket and a one-time use rocket catcher. See, it only goes as far in as the fins. So after this whole thing is like swallowed up, the skinny part of the rocket, the, the fins are just like sticking out of there. Which does lead to the other question is like, how do they reset this? Do they just like... They come in with giant tweezers and pull. <laughs> I, f I feel like they just grab the fins and give it a good yank. Like... I <laughs> <laughs> that's how i live my life just just give it a good yank if it doesn't work punch it or something i don't know <laughs> well you know sometimes you gotta grab the bull by the horns and sometimes you gotta grab the rocket by the fins <laughs> all right so this is one of my favorites uh i guess you could call it an invention it's just called apples as big as your head that would hurt a lot if you were sir isaac newton <laughs> I'm going to read the first paragraph because it's great. How'd you like to step out into your backyard and pick a two-pound apple or a strawberry as large as a peach? Perhaps you'd prefer to grow roses the size of dahlias or the prospect of biting into an exotic new fruit or vegetable, a pomato or a cucalope, might appeal to you. I guess. I don't want to eat that, though. <laughs> The two hybrid plants that he's talking about, the pomato, which is I'm assuming is part potato and part tomato, which sounds gross, but I guess it's French fries with its own ketchup. <laughs> uh, oh, man. Okay, the, the fat kid in me would really like French fries with its own ketchup. <laughs> you know what? Actually, like, I, I take back what I said. I think the pomato is a great idea, but part cucumber and part cantaloupe why? There's no reason. There is no reason. 
I love the idea of like, you know, obviously we want to feed more people. The population was increasing, still is. We need to feed more people. We need to get more food. And instead of focusing on, you know, how to get the most amount of food out of a given acre of land, they're just like, well, what if we made vegetables and fruits physically bigger? I love this one paragraph, which is how they thought they were going to do this. And this is so 1950s. Remember where we were with scientific advancements. It says the secret of evolution. It's locked up in germ cells of plants and animals inside the thread-like particles known as chromosomes. Man has finally reached the stage where he is able to affect some wonderful changes in plant chromosomes by relatively simple chemical means. Plant hormones, which stimulate growth and hasten ripening, have proved successful in many instances. And a drug called colchicine shows great promise of opening fantastic paths in plant culture. <laughs> Fascinating that they were like, oh my gosh, these things called chromosomes, and then there's hormones, and we could manipulate that. And to be fair, we have manipulated that. Yeah. Do you think this is the start of what we would call GMOs? Although, to be fair, most plants are GMOs as they've been crossbred, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a whole different that's a whole different thing. In one sense, we have been altering the DNA of plants for millennia, but I think this is the birth of what we'd call like genetic engineering. Ah, uh, yeah. Where it's like, let's use chemicals and science to change plants, to change their chromosomes, like. And this is like when they're just playing fast and loose with with plant genetics. Because part of the article is like how to do this yourself in your own home. And like you can you can get colchicine and put it on your own plants. And and they did say your experiments with the drug will be rewarding and thrilling. Dude. You heard it here. If you try this drug, it will be rewarding and thrilling. <laughs> on your crops. On your crops people not <laughs> don't put it in you i mean it's this drug that make things bigger i i don't know what the limits to this thing are just put a little bit on each bicep <laughs> <laughs> this is the best way to cheat for your local county fair we don't condone cheating but if you're gonna do it uh oh if you are rubbing experimental 1950s drugs on your crops i absolutely condone that <laughs> do that as often as you can <laughs> Oh, huh. Apparently you can still get this stuff, and it's used to treat gout. Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> I am going to go into my garden with a bottle of gout medicine and just see what happens. <laughs> there is a picture of a 32-pound turnip that dwarfs a three-year-old child. Will all turnips in the future be this size? No, because most people don't eat turnips, so that's not the one that we want to make bigger. <laughs> <laughs> I love the optimism of the 1950s when they're like, we did it, boys. We made gigantic turnips. Everything's going to be smooth sailing from here. They said, we won World War II. What can't we do? All right. We've got one more to get to. Moon farms. I've always wanted to have my own moon. <laughs> so... This one's kind of fun. I should I should explain this a little bit. When we're talking about moon farms, this isn't literally farming on the moon. 
Uh, this is more like using solar power to grow algae in satellites orbiting the Earth. So it's not a moon farm in the sense that we're farming on the moon, but it's more of a moon farm in the sense that we made a little artificial moon that's a farm. From his own words, this starts off saying, should Earth's food supply grow scarce, science will look to algal culture and moon farms. So then it goes on to say that growing tubes are concentrically arranged on an upper deck, drying and collecting equipment, storage bins, living quarters, etc. are in the shallow bowel beneath and a solar power plant, which they've already discussed in their previous edition of their magazine, is set above the saucer, generates current to operate auxiliary mechanisms. So this is just floating farms. Yeah, so it's uh, farming algae in space. And if you don't know what algae is, it is described in this article as the extremely primitive, one-celled plants that sometimes make green scum on stagnant water. And this is in an article that's trying to convince you to eat it. <laughs> I don't know how well that would go over for them, but I'm sure that it would be nutritionally dense. Oh, yeah. Uh, people are talking about using algae to uh, make biofuel and kind of growing algae in the same solar collector tubes that they're using for this, um, but not in space, just on the ground. That would actually be really good, especially if you're using these tubes and not having algal blooms that would disrupt flora and fauna in water systems. So oh yeah, having them above and outside of that water system would be good. Yeah, it, according to the article, a single farm the size of Rhode Island could produce enough protein to feed half the world's population, which was uh, 2.4 billion at the time. So basically, one Rhode Island can feed uh, 1.2 billion people. And the vegans everywhere go bonkers. They're like, yes, we've been vindicated. <laughs> Which also begs the question, why do we need to put these in space? Like, we just need less than 10 Rhode Islands to, to feed the entire... We have plenty of... Rhode Islands? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, people from Rhode Island. Okay, there's only one Rhode Island, but there's a lot of there's a lot of expanses of land that are the size of Rhode Island. Okay. Like a single Kansas could feed the earth multiple times over. Also, sorry to Kansas listeners. <laughs> <laughs> We're not trying to give away your spaces, I promise. Hey, let's let's take over Kansas and use it to grow <laughs> algae. <laughs> this sounds like it would solve so many conundrums. Yeah. Okay, but also, again, we'd have to use our little space elevator to get up and down because you can't land that. You're going to squish people. <laughs> so once it's up it has to stay up so space elevator right away jessica this is the beauty of the plan do you see these little rocket ships with the four fins on them they go up to the little space station and then they're gonna come back down into the rocket catcher it all comes together <laughs> it's all part of the frank tinsley cinematic universe <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> it's all coming together. Yes, and what could possibly go wrong? This is when the aliens actually come by and they're like, listen, people, um, we're going to have to take over Earth now because clearly you can't do it yourselves. I feel like the aliens were ju are just going to come by and be like, why don't you put this stuff on the ground? Like, you brought all this stuff up into space and then you send rockets up to retrieve the algae and bring it back down to Earth. And our answer is going to be, 
hear me out, our atomic peace zeppelin didn't turn out so well. We've got some we've got some nuclear winter going on down there. He's gonna say we're running out of Rhode Islands. <laughs> we create the problems and we create the solutions. <laughs> Okay. So we usually end these episodes by asking if they get points for trying, and I think it's obvious that every single one of these does. Uh, but do you have a favorite? I have to say Moon Farms, because the concept, not doing it in space, but the concept is impressive. And if the science is true, which, let's be honest, 1950s nutritional science is not exactly known to be like, up to snuff. <laughs> but if that is true, I mean, what a great way to to solve a lot of the world's problems. This is probably back also in the time when they would be like, here, have this pill, and it will give you all the nutrients you need for the day. And then somebody realized, from a psychological perspective, humans kind of need to chew and swallow and taste their food. So, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know, humans, they're always chewing. <laughs> I know. So, you know, pluses, minuses, but I, I like that one the most. Yeah, I do like that one. And I that one might be the one that comes true. I, I think maybe someday we'll, we'll end up eating solar-grown algae. You never know. Yeah, that or the apples as big as your head would be the two that I see possibly being able to come true. None of the rest of them. I was just about to say the gigantic apples is my favorite. Because this is one that you could also do at home. And we have pictures of actual things that have been grown through this method that are the size of a three-year-old. This one works. You know, uh, go buy some culture scene on eBay and rub it on whatever plants you can find. Maybe they'll become gigantic. Maybe look farther into what they were saying on the how of how to do that. Just throwing that out there. Or if nothing else, you can fix your gout. It's going to be fine. <laughs> It fixes gout, and it makes potatoes grow into the size of footballs. I don't know why we ever stopped researching colchicine. <laughs> I think the two that go for the food is definitely our favorite. Maybe we'd need dinner. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think we should wrap it up. But thanks for listening, and thank you to Frank Tinsley for really giving us some, some ideas for the future. And as always, if at first you don't succeed, tell us about it.